Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 109 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss any of the big-name guests that I've got lined up for you with new VRP Rocks episodes dropping every single Monday. And while you're there, on your app, if it allows you to do so, of course, please leave a quick five-star review for me, please. It takes, well, two seconds, if that, it really does. And it makes a huge difference to help spread the word of the podcast. I know that you can do it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Good Pods and and Podcast Addict and probably many others too. So please just click the five-star button, uh, nothing less than five stars, please. And if you've got time, leave a short review as well. I'd be forever grateful. In fact, it can be my kind of early Christmas present from you. So thank you very much for that. On today's episode, then, I speak to a fabulous songwriter and producer whose records have sold half a billion copies worldwide no joke he's worked with some of the biggest names in the entire music business writing so many hit songs that well it would take me the length of this interview just to read them out so i'm not gonna bother i am of course talking about desmond child now this was sparked by longtime listener joey michaud who emailed a little while ago asking if we could get some interviews with other people in the rock world not just the rock stars themselves I saw that Desmond had a new book out and thought that that would be a great place to start. Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life is the name of Desmond's book. It's a fascinating read, so many great stories from all the people he's worked with, a lot of personal information in there too. It's available now. I recommend you go and get yourselves a copy. It is a fantastic book. I have read it. Quickly though, before we hear from Desmond, a shout out to a few people who got in touch following last week's episode with brilliant Simon Phillips. Dean Noble message saying he loved hearing the stories with Simon, definitely one of his favourite drummers. Jonathan Richard emailed to say he was on the same flight as Simon back in 1996, but was too starstruck to approach him. He wishes he had done now. Jeff Hickman, though, he said he did meet him. Jeff said that he met Simon in New York City a few years back, a class act. It's a highlight of my life. Uh, Nicholas Forsland said about Simon joining Toto. He saved the band when he joined, a perfectionist with a clear and distinct sound. Mick Brown said Simon is gifted for sure. Check out Space Boogie by Jeff Beck on the There and Back album. Simon was 23 when he played on the album. It'll blow your mind. Uh, Joe Riley loved the interview and said his favourite work of Simon's was his playing with Michael Schenker. And Patrick Langdon said, All this talk of Geddy and Alex getting back together with Rush, I think Simon would be amazing with them. He's so versatile. I agree with that. Huge thanks to everyone that emailed or messaged on social media about the interview with Simon Phillips. If you've not listened yet, please do so. It's a cracker. And always feel free to email me, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or message me on the socials. I'll give you a mention on next week's show as well. Back to Desmond then. And in this interview, you're going to hear so many great tales as he tells all, basically, about working with Kiss and Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Joan Jett, Alice Cooper... Bonnie Tyler, there's so more as well in there. Honestly, he's a very entertaining character, a big personality, a lot of fun. And yeah, he's going to tell stories that you're going to love to hear. So please do enjoy this chat with Desmond Child. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by the brilliant songwriter and producer Desmond Child. He's got a brand new book out. It's called Desmond Child, Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life. Now, Desmond has lived the American dream from rags to riches. People see the credits. They see the songs. They they see the people that he's worked with. But this book tells the struggle behind all that. It's deeply personal. He opens up about everything. So we're going to start there, Desmond. Um, How long has this book taken from start to finish? And was it a cathartic experience to get it all down on paper? We, uh, My collaborator, David Ritz, and I started the book over seven years ago. So I call it my seven-year jailhouse confession. I mean, it really was very cathartic, um, especially, you know, getting down to the real stories. Because, you know, as we go along in life, we rewrite everything to our best look, right? And uh, this time, I I decided to, you know, actually confess and tell the truth about everything. And was it difficult to, to go back? Because obviously, your childhood, what was difficult? I mean, you, you go through all the, the explanations and the struggles and everything coming from Cuba and the issues around your parents and your mother and your birth father were homophobic and things like that. And you left home at 18 to go to New York. And was it difficult to, to actually put it down on paper and, and get it all out there? It was very painful. Uh, I mean, um, I just didn't realize, you know, in the end, looking back, you know, the, this kind of drive that I have, it kind of explained it. Um, I just 
wanted so badly to be able to take care of my mother and also to fulfill her dream. She was a songwriter and a poet as well. And she really struggled. She never stopped working. And, you know, she would work at, um, you know, fast food chain, you know, during the day and come home at 1130 at night with the soggy hamburgers and fish sandwiches. We'd put two tops together, you know, to make one dry one. <laughs> and, um, you know, she on weekends, all she did was her music. And then she'd be out in the cabarets and nightclubs pushing her songs uh, to to the uh, artists. And she did get cuts, but never made a, a penny. Because in those days, you know, it was very difficult um, mm -hmm. not being um, someone who spoke English, somebody who had money to afford lawyers to defend her. I'm, I mean, all of these things factored into it. So I vowed that I would make things right. And it, it's something that has driven me. I don't think it's healthy. <laughs> I don't think it's healthy to live your life trying to live your your mother's dream, right? <laughs> well, exactly. Um, and then I, you said, I said um, you were eighteen when you you moved to New York, and and it was the dream, wasn't it, to, to get into music? And you had your own group and things like that, didn't you, from quite a young age? Yes, um, I I went to NYU, and I had a girlfriend at the time, um, you know, who she and I started our group, Desmond Child and Rouge, with these other very beautiful, powerful women, Miriam Valley and Diana Graselli. And we just, you know, hit the, the streets, putting up our posters, uh, stenciling the sidewalks. We'd play two or three gigs a week. In fact, we had all the club owners mad at us because they'd open the Village Voice and they would, you know, on the calendar of events, they'd see our name like three or four times. It's like, how are you going to you know, bring people into the club if you've spread your audience out over like three or four gigs. But we all vowed we'd bring 10 people in each. So no matter where we were, we'd have 40 or 50 people every gig because we had diehard fans. So, you know, that those were some of the most exciting, you know, funniest and, and lovable times of my life. Yeah, and with that group, you you appeared on Saturday Night Live and things like that. But uh, yes. as we said, it's a tale of of struggle. You, you'd be bare your soul all the way through from childhood. But as this is a rock podcast, we're going to focus on some of the huge and incredible names that you've worked with in, in terms of the rock sphere. And we'll start with the first hit, the first blockbuster that really put you on the map. And it doesn't get much bigger nowadays thinking back than, than Kiss and I Was Made For Loving You. Now, you first met Paul Stanley, I think it says in the book, when he came backstage after one of your shows. Is that correct? That's right. Desmond Sheldon Rouge was uh, performing at a little club called tracks t-r-a-x on west 72nd street you know it was literally an underground club underground and um we were getting ready to go on the the dressing room was behind the front curtain so it was like the stage was right there and uh this guy like pokes his head in you know pulls the curtain open and said hey i'm paul stanley of kiss and it's like we're looking at him like we didn't know what he looked like because in those days they never showed their faces. Course, yeah. And so he said, I just want to let you guys know that um, George Harrison of the Beatles is in the front table. It was like, <laughs> wow. I, 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 I had like a narcolepsy attack. I just wanted to take a little nap. You know, I was just like so nervous and we went out there and killed it. And um, then Paul came backstage afterward and said, hey, you, you know, we should try writing a song together. And jokingly, I said, okay, well, why don't you, you know, we're, we were starting our, recording our first album. I said, why don't you write a song with us for our first album, uh, which we're doing now, and then I'll write a song with you. And he like looked at me kind of funny. Well, we co-wrote a song called The Fight, uh, a song I had started with David Landau, John Landau's brother, who was our guitarist. And uh, and then uh, it was his turn. So he said, okay, okay, come come to SIR. And um, they were rehearsing, their kiss was rehearsing. So I walked in and um, there was a piano on the, on the left-hand side of the stage with a big, heavy canvas cover, no need for a piano in kiss, right? So uh, <laughs> he helped me pull the cover off and then we sat together side by side and we started writing I Was Made For Loving You, which in the end, it, it was a very revolutionary song because he was very um, influenced 
growing up with the sound of Motown. And so, you know, if you listen to I Was Made For Loving You, you can almost hear this, the, the, the feeling of uh, standing in the shadow of love. You know, I was made for loving you, you know, standing in the shadow of love. And so, um, you know, we decided to try to put that Motown sound, you know, that dance beat, heavy dance beat with rock guitars. And nobody had done that before. And that opened the door to really the the, the music that followed, you know, the, in the 80s, you know, from Prince and Madonna and Michael Jackson, Beat It, all of that. That happened because our song was so extraordinary and it was, you know, a hit all around the world. I recently found out that the only place it actually went to number one was Australia. How cool is that? Yeah. But it was, you know, number two, number three, it was in the top five everywhere in the world. And to this day, it's the most successful Kiss song of history. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? But and I think I, it caused a bit of control. Oh, sorry. And Gene Simmons hated the song. <laughs> to this yes, day. he did indeed. <laughs> Tell us about then, Dan, because um, he said some not very nice things about it, hasn't he, in the, over, the, over the years? Yes. I mean, I think it was more like, you know, his shtick, like, having to have something to say in an interview. <laughs> and so at one point he was, you know, he made an album um, produced by my great friend, Bob Ezrin called the elder. And so their whole thing was because I, I was having all of this success with Bon Jovi and Aerosmith. And so he, he, and so he was looking at all the success and, and his shtick for that record was, we don't need co collaborators. We don't need co-writers. In fact, we paid guards to stand at the door of the studio to keep Desmond Child out. And it was like, I read that and it's like, why would he slag the person that's put money in his pocket? You know, it was like, so, I mean, at that time, now I understand his humor and kind of mm -hmm. think it's funny. But at that time, I was very hurt. So I called Paul up and I said, Paul, um, you know, this really bothers me. He said it like in 50 interviews all over the world. He said, why is he saying that? He says, you know, I can't control Gene. I mean, Gene, you know, says whatever he wants to say. I said, you know, well, tell him to go, go F himself, okay? <laughs> and so later on that afternoon i checked my uh, my answering machine you know we didn't have voicemail then yeah um and i heard like four words hi it's gene sorry click <laughs> <laughs> and that was probably the only apology he ever gave in his entire life <laughs> for anything <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you say now you, you know him better i mean obviously things are a lot better between you two in the last few years oh, since then. i mean he's always very nice to me when i see him he's like you know he's the kind of guy he's very big right and uh, yeah. so he i and you know i'm almost six foot tall but he towers over me and you know who knows what kind of platform shoes are going on underneath that as well right um, but you know he's like you know, he comes up and when he talks to you, he gets up closer and closer and closer and closer. And he's right in your face. And he, you know, shakes my hand, like almost crushes it. And he says, you're a very attractive and very talented young man. And then he'll walk away. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Uh, um, but you obviously, you worked with Kiss again throughout the 80s, didn't you? The, yeah. the albums um, Animal Eyes and I think Asylum were a couple of the records oh. you worked with. So how did you approach those ones? Well, I, my, I didn't work with Kiss. I co-wrote okay. with Paul Stanley. And Paul okay. would bring his songs that he co-wrote with, you know, he co-wrote with, with various other uh, co-writers. Um, and I was one of his favorite and he'd bring them to the table and, and he'd usually get maybe half the, half the record with songs he had collaborated on. And so um, that's how, that's how it happened. But, you know, I owe everything to Paul because he's the one that introduced me to Bon Jovi. He's the one that, that opened the door and also taught me how to write stadium anthems, the kiss way which is the protagonist can never be the victim. 
uh, always has to be the winner. The songs have to feel uplifting. And, you know, they're, a lot of them are tongue in cheek, like Heaven's on Fire, which we co wrote. And also, you know, the idea of writing songs that had opposites, you know, like Heaven's on Fire and uh, Who Wants to Be Lonely, you know, like they have tension of opposites within the words, which then I applied to the song, the titles that I brought to my writing sessions with Bon Jovi. The very first song we wrote was You Give Love a Bad Name. And that was a title I had literally written on a little piece of paper in my back pocket. And um, it wasn't five minutes into meeting John and Richie. I pull it out and I say the title and John's face lights up. I don't think I saw that many teeth in my lifetime. You know, <laughs> this big smile and we were off and running. And he threw down Shot Through the Heart because he had a previous song called Shot Through the Heart. And none of us are, you know, waste a good hook, you know, so we'll just like recycle it into the next project. Right. And so then, uh, you know, Shot Through the Heart and You're to Blame, Darlin. And then the three of us saying, you give love a bad name. And that was our first, you know, three-way fist in the air collaboration. Incredible stuff. You mentioned Paul introduced you to Bon Jovi. How, how did all that come about then? They, uh, bon Jovi was one of the, you know, acts in the Kiss tour. And so okay. they made friends and, you know, Paul, you know, said, hey, why don't you try writing with this guy, Desmond? And so he did. But I didn't know it until recently that they had no intention of, of writing with me for Bon Jovi. They had a plan to write with me, you know, like they, I, the idea was like the hit guy, the pop guy for other artists. And then that would bring money to their coffers so that they continue touring and all of that. But after writing You Give Love a Bad Name, they didn't want to let that song go. And then we went on to write Living on a Prayer and many other songs, Bad Medicine and, you know, Keep the Faith and, you know, so many songs through, throughout the years. Yeah. And uh, we've become very close, and especially with John, he's the godfather to um, my twin sons, Roman and Nero, um, who are now 21 years old. Wow. <laughs> and he's a great godfather. You know, if any time, you know, they ever got into trouble or anything, he would sit them down like a, like a godfather from New Jersey does and like <laughs> set, set, set the record straight. <laughs> you're going to listen to John Bon Jovi definitely um, and you mentioned obviously the, the Living on a Prayer there I mean it's the name of the book uh, I read that you'd said it was your favourite song that you'd worked on as well so um, tell me about how that one came about well um, <clears throat> the, 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 that was the second time we got together to write and we wrote in a borrowed apartment on this I was playing this old rickety upright piano uh, grand piano, upright grand, you know, it was like this, Yeah, it, you know, the keys were stuck, you know, half of them were gone. And uh, they came in, Richie was on guitar, John brought his notebooks of lyrics. And he said he wanted to write a working class, um, you know, kind of tale um, uh, about this, you know, couple that was having a really hard time making ends meet. And he didn't tell me at the time, but in his mind, he said he hadn't in mind this couple from high school that he and Dorothea knew, Bonnie and Joe. And so I, on the other hand, you know, had um, my experience with Maria Vidal, who, who we, you know, had Desmond Child and Rouge together, and we lived in a one little room, you know, for four years together. And she, you know, while I wrote songs at home, she was working as a waitress in a diner called Once Upon a Stove. And her waitress name was Gina. Because she reminded everyone of Gina Lola Brigida. She had black hair. She was very vivacious, very sexy. And so I threw in, you know, Johnny and Gina, because Johnny is my original name, um, John Charles Barrett, which I had changed in high school to Desmond Child. And so, you know, John said, I can't sing Johnny. That's my name. It's like, oh, right. And so we're all like looking off Johnny and like somebody, I don't know who it was, said Tommy, because it was like a, a sound like uh, maybe because John was thinking of Bonnie and Joe, right? So Tommy, Tommy and Gina, and that's how Tommy and Gina were born. 
Incredible. And it has become a, a literal anthem, hasn't it? It's, it's one of those songs that have stood the test of time. And you go in a nightclub today and they'll still play it. It's just a huge, huge anthemic song. Uh, I have um, a friend who's an astrophysicist who has a company that makes um, um, a kind of piece of, of equipment that's on the space station. And we met in Greece um, a few summers ago, and he engraved on this, this piece of equipment that measures all the radiation that gets inside the, the space station. And it says, halfway there, living on a prayer with our initials on it. So we made it out into space. How cool is that? That is very cool. Very cool indeed. Incredible stuff. Uh, another band that you mentioned as well that kind of followed not long afterwards. Um, in your book, John Kolodner phoned you and says, um, very famous man himself, of course, he he called you up and said that he wants you to write me a hit with the assholes, um, a term of endearment for a certain group of, I don't know, American rock royalty. So explain that one for us. Well, John Kolodner, you know, had a very acerbic humor. And, and you know, he was very like negative a negative person but very lovable too and so he you know he had aerosmith and he also had share so you know aerosmith was the assholes and then he called share shithead and then later on i found out from steven tyler that he called me faggot <laughs> no <laughs> this was when you know politically correct was not in fashion <laughs> and so <laughs> um he was a he is a brilliant man who when you know when rock changed and you know music went way into urban and all of this he just retired he just you know he wasn't with it he was just all about rock a purist and um he really helped me a lot and um he imposed me on uh Steven Tyler and Joe Perry so they did not want to co-write with an outside writer I don't think they ever had, and it was always in-house. And so um, they fly me to Boston, and I think they thought they'd just meet me and then send send me away. And so I walk into this warehouse where they were rehearsing their stage show and also, you know, recording and doing some stuff. And so the big, you know, doors open, this beam of light, you know, goes goes in through, and I'm like walking through the beam of light. Steven Tyler's like walking towards me with this big smile on his face. And um, he said, come with me, come with me. I mean, no introductions, no nothing. And uh, Joe was working on a backwards guitar loop that went, na-na, na-na, na-na. And then Steven started singing, cruising for the ladies and it was like that you know he did that and then they said what do you think of that and i said i think it's bad and they looked at me like bad yeah <laughs> just to kind of break the ice and be funny because i say a lot of funny things uh i don't think van halen would put that on the b side of their worst record and then joe was like you know, looking at me with his arms crossed like sideways. And then Stephen uh, sheepishly said, well, when I first was singing that hook, I was singing, dude looks like a lady. It's like, dude looks like a lady? That's a hit title. And Joe said, but we don't know what that means. And besides, we don't want to insult the gay community. I said, dude, I'm gay. I'm not insulted. Let's." Go. And I said to Stephen, how did you you know, come up with that title. He said, well, they were taking a break with the roadies and they went down by the shore and uh, they walked into this, you know, almost empty bar at the end of this long bars, you know, all these stools was this vision of loveliness, this like big, you know, like <laughs> platinum mullet with, uh, you know, uh, black nails and jewelry and this ivory skin curvy figure and uh, they were all like drawing straws who was going to go up and say hello. So suddenly she turns around and it's Vince Neil of Motley Crue. And so then that's when Steven said, he said, ooh, that dude looks like a lady. Dude, that dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. And so when they went to write this, you know, to this uh, loop, he started singing Dude Looks Like a Lady, I guess, or or they immediately said, no, we can't sing that. So they changed the cruising for the ladies, which is the most generic, you know, thing. I mean, how many, you know, 
rock videos have we seen guys yeah. top down on Sunset Strip and the girls jump into the car and you know it was like you just saw the whole thing. But uh they they went along with with what I suggested which was to, let's write that story. Cruised into a bar on the shore, her picture graced the grime on the door. The idea that you know the guy you know goes in and he sees this gorgeous stripper and then he goes backstage and then she pulls out her gun and tries to blow him away. <laughs> but he doesn't run away. He stays because he goes, my funky lady. I like it, like it, like it, like that. So how ahead of our times uh, were we with yeah. that song? The second verse goes, never judge a book by its cover or who you're going to love by your lover. And it's like, it's the whole idea. It's like, if it looks good to you and you're drawn to it, go for it. And also to not judge it. And so I think we were way ahead of our time with that song. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think later on, Stephen and Joe both kind of, I don't know, downplayed your involvement somehow, somewhat in that song. Well, um, what was your feeling when that, when that happened? Well, it was opposite. Stephen, okay. uh, you know, spent three pages trying to say that the song was already written, you know, okay. and, you know, that I just threw in a few little sprinkly little words and stuff. And it's like, and also... Uh, did a portrait of me, uh, you know, describing me. I, I look, you know, in his mind, I look like Juan Valdez of the coffee commercials, you know, with a big handlebar mustache. First of all, not even in the 70s porn era did I wear a handlebar mustache. You know, I've had beards, but never just like a Ted Lasso kind of mustache. And <laughs> which that insulted me more than him saying that I hardly had anything to do with the song. And so, you know, then Joe made his um, book, uh, collaborated with David Ritz, the one I did, you know, years before I, I I wrote with David. And he said, well, Desmond came up with the title. And it's like, no, I didn't. That was Stephen's title. So they both had, you know, one, you know, over over praising me for coming up with the title, which I didn't. I just recognized that the title was a hit title. And so, um, you know, not that long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, Stephen made a country record and he had a song called Red, White and You that one of my writers had written. So he came to my studio to sing the song and I sat him down. I said, look, let me talk to you about, you know, dude looks like a lady. And I went and I told him the whole entire story. I just told you. And he's looking off in the distance and he goes, oh, I like your story better than mine. It's like, what? Now it's like forever in his book, wrong? You know, so I, I decided to set the record straight in my book. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned there, I mean, Joe being quite frosty with you. I'm guessing that's not the, the, the first time it's ever happened. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you deal with that? How do you face that um, when you come across someone like that? Well, the, the following day, he didn't show up to the session. So I thought, oh my God, you know, he hates me. <laughs> so uh, luckily, Stephen showed up. No one was there, no roadies, no nothing. This big cavernous, you know, warehouse. And at the, you know, at, in front of the stage, like down on the floor, you know, with against the stage was this little Willitzer piano. So he and I sat next to each other and I started asking him about his life. And he told me that he had, you know, struggled with, with uh, you know, substance abuse and had gone to rehab and was going to meetings and that the person that got him through all of that was his beautiful new wife Teresa and so she he kept saying you know well she's an angel you know she's my angel and it's like angel and then i saw those big blubber lips of his saying angel and i started remembering angie by the rolling stones and mick jagger going angie you know it's like he says Angie, but his lips keep fluttering, you know? <laughs> and I said, oh my God, he's got the same blubber lips. I have to write a song where he says Angie or Angel like a million times, you know, so I can see those lips move the same way. I mean, that was like the crazy thought I had in my mind. So we wrote Angel, which was their next hit. And um, then the third day, Stephen didn't show up, but Joe did. And we wrote a song together called Hearts Done Time. So by now I was proving my worth. 
And so then, you know, eventually, you know, we became friends. But, you know, my secret was always because I'm I'm sort of like the palace eunuch. You know, um, let's say I'm writing with, you know, a band, you know, the, you know, and then they go off to their AA meeting, see, but they leave me at the house with the wife, you know, making dinner. So, you know, uh, I, I befriend the wife and then, you know, I start rearranging furniture, uh, you know, straightening out the paintings, moving paintings, fluffing up the pillows, you know, doing all this stuff. And they know that they can trust me with their wives because, you know, I wasn't going to like, you know, have an affair with them or something. Right. So, um, you know, that's, that's how I got inside. And, you know, if you're friendly and nice to the wife, you're in because pillow talk, you know, they go, you know, I really like that Desmond. You should invite him back. I need help with uh, figuring out what I'm going to do with the den. You know, <laughs> so I kept getting invited back. <laughs> Interior design is a good help. There you go. <laughs> you, you have to, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and in your book, someone that you, you mentioned that you adored was uh, was Joan Jett. So what was she like to work with and why did she capture your imagination so much? Well, Kenny Laguna saw, you know, the success I was having with these rock bands. And, you know, frankly, Joan hadn't had another hit after I Love Rock and Roll. And so um, and now like eight years had gone by. But that song was so strong. I mean, it fueled your yeah. tour and also her persona and, you know, everything about her was so extraordinary. She's so androgynous. I mean, she was, you know, had the face of like a, a female Elvis Presley, right? She was gorgeous, you know, and then then her physique, with like wide shoulders, muscular, boy hands, you know, and like this tough demeanor. You know, I, I, I always say I fell in love with the boy in her. You know, I mean, she's she's just got it. And uh, the her integrity is unbelievable. You know, she just never would do an endorsement for you know any product or, or instrument or uh, anything like she never sold out, you know, to anything. And she's, you know, done extraordinarily well. And so um, I had a title in my back pocket. Uh, I hate myself for loving you. Another title that had opposites, hate and love, right? Yeah. And so um, she said, I'm not singing love. You know, I already have, I love rock and roll. I'm not going to sing another song with the word love. And I said, yeah, but it has hate in it, you know, to balance it. And so finally, 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 I convinced her to, well, just try it. And before we knew it, we had written the song. And, um, you know, I have the cassette tape of us writing that song together. Oh, it's wow. so cool. You know, at one point, one of the lyrics was, you know, uh, something about the voodoo you do, you know, you, know, you, the, you put the, you know, I get something like, you know, you know, about the voodoo you do. I mean, that didn't made it, make it into the song, but it's really amazing when you hear all the things you try in a song that yeah. you cast out, but they're still cool. And so, um, you know, I love Joan Jett and we've, you know, re we wrote a few other songs after that, you know, uh, Get Off the Cross, I Need the Wood. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I mean, we wrote some very cool songs <laughs> and uh, you got a it's problem. Just, it's just, a song yeah. called You Got a Problem. You got a problem. You got a problem. I got a problem. Woo! You know, it's like really punky. And so um, I would love to work with her again. But uh, one of the extraordinary things about this, you know, I hate myself for loving you. It became the Monday night football theme. Then it's now continues to be the Sunday night football team. Um, it was first recorded uh, at, with Faith Hill, then Pink, and then uh, Carrie Underwood. And then uh, Carrie decided to write her own uh, football theme. And they, they threw our song out. And then by public demand, you know, she was made to put it back. And <laughs> recently, Dolly Parton recorded the song featuring Joan Jett on her new album, uh -huh. Rockstar. Yeah. So now I can add Dolly Parton to my list of celebrities, you know, <laughs> legends, celebrity legends that I've uh, collaborated with. 
Incredible list as well. Just want to pick you up on something when you said you had it in your back pocket. You've mentioned it a couple of times. So do you and did you kind of always have ideas and did you always keep a note of them and and they kind of came back up at different points and you go, oh, I've had that before or I've got something that might fit you perfectly. Is that is that the way you worked? Well, I, I think sometimes it's the best way to walk into a session is to bring something that then, you know, either they like it or they don't like it. Usually the, the title has enough legs that they go okay well let's see what happens and before you know it a a well-written title the song's already written it's just built into the title and so it eliminates all the millions of other possibilities you know it's just they just blow away and whatever suits the the strengthening of that idea that's what remains and i learned that from my mentor bob crew who co-produced and produced the four seasons with Bob Gaudio. And um, at a certain point in his career, he took me under his wing. And only because I'm a Scorpio, because he, you know, Bob Gaudio was Scorpio. Kenny Nolan is a Scorpio who co-wrote Lady Marmalade with him. And then me, it was like only Scorpios. He was a Scorpio as well. So he only trusted Scorpios. And so I spent two years with him. We wrote 38 songs. But that was my college of songwriting because he wouldn't even begin to let me start even singing a note until we had a solid title to write to. So we could sit there all day long, just, you know, throwing words around until we finally came up with something. And so that was the kind of uh, Brill Building, Broadway, um, you know, discipline that, that I learned. Before that, even, you know, I had already had the hit with Kiss and everything. It's mumbling, you know, you play chords and mumble. And these days, you know, kids will put up a, a drum loop that has chords. So then they start rapping or singing to that drum loop that actually doesn't change. You know, it just, they just keep doing variations on that same tone, which makes music very linear. And in the end, uh, boring. Because it doesn't stand the test of time. It becomes like today's newspaper. It's not good tomorrow. You know? And so, um, you know, if the person is cool that's singing it and all that, that could give it legs. You know, if it's, you know, whoever it is, Kanye or, you know, The Weeknd or this or that. But The Weeknd, by the way, is is a real, you know, amazing songwriter, you know, that has changes, chord changes. I mean, the guy's genius. Um, I really would love to work with him sometime. This that's my pitch. Weekend, call me. <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> Fascinating. I love hearing all these stories and, and the way you come around stuff like that. It's, it's brilliant. Um, someone else I'd like to touch on quickly, if you don't mind, as well. Alice Cooper. Now he's he was obviously a megastar, but he'd, he'd been through a a dry patch as well in in better ways of putting it probably but uh trash the album that you worked on him with and poison the first big single i think it was 12 years since he'd had a top 10 single and then along came poison a huge hit so so how did you get involved with with alice and how were you drafted in to help him with that well there was um i had an, a publisher uh at deirdre o'hara and she was married to an a&r guy at epic records uh, bob pfeiffer who had signed alice cooper so they were looking for somebody to work with him and so, um, you know, she put me in there. Uh, you know, the only thing I didn't realize was that Bob was a songwriter also. But there was a Sony ironclad rule that the A&R person could never co-write with the artist. They had to remain neutral so they wouldn't be choosing the songs they co-wrote. Yeah. You know, but anyway, he was, you know, insisting, uh, you know, that he also be included as a songwriter and all that. And I said, absolutely not. So Alice and I basically wrote the entire record. I think there was an out, an, a song he had written with Kip Winger previously that we recorded. I don't think I'm a co-writer on that, but almost all the songs um, were were written almost like a theatrical piece because he explained that Alice Cooper is really a character um, yeah. that he invented. And the way he got the name Alice Cooper was because his band was called Alice Cooper. They thought it was a cool like weird name. So people started calling him Alice. And so um, Alice uh, has, um, you know, a history, his, his a kind of a, a religious history. His father was a minister, a preacher. 
So the way he explained it, and he's very, you know, religious, very spiritual person to this day. And um, he's a believer and belongs to a church and all this kind of stuff. I mean, can you imagine, you know, you look over and you go, what kind of church is this? <laughs> is this a coven? <laughs> and so um, he said with Alice, with Alice, if Alice cuts the head off a doll, you know, for shock value, he has to have his head cut off by the end of the show in the guillotine, which he still has in his show. Right. So there's always a moral lesson. You can't be bad and survive. You know, you get punished. And so we wrote the songs this way. And so, um, you know, I brought every trick in the book to writing trash uh, and also brought all the artists that I had been having success with. Aerosmith, uh, Bon Jovi, Joan Jett, they all contributed to the album. And, um, you know, I think. It was like kind of like a what they call a barn raising, but it's more like whatever you know. Set the barn on set the barn on fire, whatever. <laughs> In fact, there was a song called "House House of Fire" that we had collaborated on with Joan Jett, and um, so that's that's how it all came to be. And um, you know, still having a lot of problems with Bob. He didn't want me to attend the mixes. And the mixing guys, you know, said, we can't do this without Desmond. I mean, I had like 50 tracks that they didn't know what went where. So reluctantly, you know, this guy was very like always, you know, competitive and kind of seemed jealous of me and all that. So, um, you know, the song was great. And we he went from selling 15,000 records to four and a half million records, you know, with the record that we made. And all the juice that we brought with it. He he brought in Kip Winger. And Kip and I recently wrote a cool song called um, um, Proud Desperado. You know, the first time we ever co-wrote together. And in any case, um, when it came time for the next record, you know, I thought for sure I was going to be the producer. In fact, I had a different direction I wanted to take him in. Because now we had already had, you know, Nine Inch Nails and, you know, the kind of the... Um, you know, the start of this new kind of active rock. And a lot of it was electronic rather than, um, you know, just guitars. And I wanted to make, make, and also Ozzy Osbourne was like, you know, in No More Tears, like very cool songs, you know. And so that's the direction I wanted to take him in. And Bob convinced them not to hire me. So then Bob uh, co-produced the album with this British uh, producer Peter Coop, oh God, Collins, Peter Collins. Um, and they started writing songs with Alice that were kind of like Desmond Child soundalikes with a lot of modulations on all this. But the songs, you know, it wasn't successful. And the label dropped him after selling four and a half million records. Because that, that record only sold like, 85,000 records. How do you go from four and a half million to 85? And, you know, to this day, I still haven't been hired back. But we remain very good friends. Um, and I love his wife, Cheryl. And um, a year and a half ago, I did an evening of my music at the Parthenon in uh, Greece as um benefit for the Acropolis Museum um, with the you know, hope of encouraging the return of the Elgin mar marbles, Elgin marbles, right? And uh, because, you know, they're religious artifacts. It's not just artwork that, you know, if you talk to any Greek person, they'll start crying when they say, you know, that it was stolen from them 200 years ago. So because my husband and I, Curt uh, Kurt, my husband Curtis and I go there every year ever since our children were five years old to a little island called Folegandros. Every summer, we we just go there and stay there a month. We make a life for ourselves. We just, that's a, a, a home for us. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for the Greek people. So Alice came and performed. So did Bonnie Tyler, one of my favorite artists. Uh, Rita Wilson, who's Greek. And um, Derasmus from Finland. Yeah. Uh, and um, Kip Winger showed up. 
and uh, all these great other musicians, Tabitha Fair, Chris Willis, uh, Andreas Carlson, the great writer-producer from Sweden. He was in the backup line for backgrounds, and we had an 18-piece all-female orchestra, and it was you know in this outdoor amphitheater with all this video mapping on the rocks behind. Every song had a different atmosphere and set. And, and um, you know, Alice, um, you know, you could see, who, you know, the power of Alice Cooper. He comes out and the place went crazy. And he just held their attention and he opened with Poison and then sang Bed of Nails, which is now in his show again, which is a song that was from Trash that had been forgotten. And people by, pop, by popular demand started uh, asking him to perform it. So, um, you know, he just, ah, oh, he took the, you know, that stage by storm. And so I finally understood that even though I had seen Alice before, being on the stage and seeing him from that perspective up close, you could see why he's the legend that he is. Absolutely. And everyone always speaks really highly of him whenever I speak to anybody about Alice. I mean, what, what, what do you find when you, when you worked with him? What's he like as a man? He's just the sweetest and very intelligent, very articulate, has the funniest stories, the greatest sense of humor, <laughs> loves to laugh. And um, I put some of his stories in the book. I can't reveal them here. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're not decent. <laughs> Absolutely. And just one last little collaboration, uh, if you don't mind um, just talking about it. So it's an interesting one. Um, In My Dreams With You, Steve Vai, um, that from his album Sex and Religion. How did all that one come about? Somehow we had uh, collaborated together and um, my manager and I uh, became his managers. And along with our, you know, uh, Ruta Sepetis, who was our um, office m manager, um, and she ended up continuing to manage him for many years, you know, after I had left California. And, um, you know, I also art directed, you know, two of his albums, uh, Sex and Religion, and then uh, Alien Love Secrets or something. I, you know, it, it's like very cool, because I love art direction and anything that has, remember, I told you I'm a great decorator. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm good at art directing, you know, imagery and and all of that. You know, people follow my um, Instagram, Desmond Child. You know, we work really hard on the graphics of that stuff, and I really enjoy it. If I wasn't a musician, I'd be an art director. I know a graphic designer. I just love everything about words and print and pictures and you know all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, we, we worked great, and he. Um, he, Alice Cooper had given me a motorcycle and, you know, uh, Steve is a big motorcycle enthusiast. So I didn't know how to, uh, ride a motorcycle. And, you know, the gas tank had a, you know, Alice Cooper skull with the spider eyes and it said demon. Oh, very cool. It said demon child on the side. I still have it, the, the gas tank. And so Steve Vai took me out, you know, to teach me how to ride a motorcycle. I almost killed myself. Like I lost control of the of the bike very early on, rode up on somebody's yard. It looked like I was going 60 miles an hour into somebody's plate glass window. And at the last minute, I don't know how I did it. I stopped. I was able to stop it. And I was so frightened. I walked the motorcycle back. I killed myself, you know, like, you know, it's, you know, like it was like four blocks. I walked it back, you know, so that's always a funny story with Steve Vai. But, you know, he's totally you know on another level just spiritually and you know his his music his musicianship is is a virtuoso and i had seen him early on with frank zappa when i when he was just a kid and i they had come down to miami and uh they performed in a small little club and i remembered that him you know he was so striking and um, then later on, it was amazing that we got to work together. Fantastic stuff. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Desmond. Just going to finish off quickly uh, by saying that your book is it's wonderful. Definitely, I recommend people to go out and read it because oh, it's not all... This, um, you mean this little thing? 
That little thing indeed, yes, that's the one. Um, it's not all sweetness and light, though, because um, a certain Rod Stewart walked out of a couple of sessions, and I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to tell people to go and read about that. But I'm going to leave off with five quick-fire questions, if you don't mind, Desmond. Yeah. Um, the first one, do you take it personally if something that you've worked on doesn't become a hit? No, I don't take it personally. I just step over the body and move on. I don't <laughs> even bury the body. I just go. I just go to the next. Because it's unbearable. You know, failure is terrible. And yeah. if you let it get to you, you just stop. You go, well, why even bother? So I just, you know, disassociate. And I'm, I, I say, you know, um, I'm forward falling. <laughs> I fail forwards. <laughs> That's a great line. Yeah, <laughs> great line. And just, uh, did, do you remember any that, or does any spring to mind that should have been a big hit, you think, that, that didn't actually make it? Well, I I co-wrote a, a song with John Bon Jovi, and then Richie later joined the song called uh, You Want to Make a Memory. And I think it did make it the number one on the AOR chart. But, um, you know, it was, you know, I, I wasn't the producer of it, and they produced it in a kind of, linear way you know almost like with or without you or something like that okay. and I, I i i felt it it didn't really sound like bon jovi you know to me i would have produced it way more aggressively and i performed the song in my show and everything um and um it, it's that song is such a great song you know i felt it it deserved you know more and so, you know, that that was a, a song where, you know, I just, I mean, it still made it to number one, but still, it, it, you know, I wanted it to be number one in the pop charts. And it's such a great written song, you know, so, you know, that was a little bit of a disappointment, but I sound spoiled because it still made it to number one, but you know, <laughs> I had a different vision of it in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. With your resume, that's absolutely fine. Uh, question two, um, was there anybody that you you weren't keen to work with and you kind of got put with them, but they ended up surprising you in a good way? Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I am I can't think of somebody I wasn't keen to work with. I, I just, you know, more like I'm keen to work with everybody and some people, you know, the chemistry isn't there. It's more like that. And usually they don't come back. And that's okay. You know, I, I would have loved to have uh, written more with Katy Perry. And there was no problem with her. And, you know, we co-wrote with Andreas Carlson, Waking Up in Vegas, which made, made, was a number one record. But through the years, you know, I, somehow I never got put with her again. And I, I wish I wish we had worked more together. Um, kind of similar question then. Um, is there anyone that you had maybe a big falling out with during a writing session or a recording session and refused to work with them again? Hmm. Not really. You know, I mean, I I mean, I've I've written with um some country art a country artist. Let's say I wasn't even an artist. He was like a hit songwriter that had like four number ones. And then he comes to the session and he's all the time getting up, going to his phone to talk to his manager. And so I'm sitting with, you know, the late, you know, great Andrew Dorff, who's a very shy person. And they're up in my house and the guy is walking out, walking in, walking out. And finally, I said, you know what? You have to put away your phone. You know, I will not, I, I can't work with you. You know, it's like, this is very disrespectful and you need to stop and give us the time that you said you were going to work with us. And he got so pissed he left, you know, I mean, but I'm, you know, the guy was young and, you know, I, I, I'm kind of a mentor type, you know, I'm a teacher. I had great mentors and very strict teachers. Bob Crew was a very strict teacher, you know, that would chain me to the piano <laughs> And, um, you know, I, you know, it's like that, you know, this, this whole like, idea that somehow your time is, has no value. And I don't abide by that. The, the, the point is that when, when it's time to write, phones shut off. And you, you're only in the here and now, you can only write in the here and now, anything of merit. So, you know, that idea of that ADD idea of like, 
oh, I can multitask. You know, I can drive and text and my baby's in the back. Really? You know, it's not, you know, I, I, to me, it's so exhilarating when, when people in this creative circle just surrender to each other and we can go to a higher level. So create something that's never been heard before and not just recycle that person's last hit because that person thinks that's the only thing their fans will ever want to listen to, right? There's stories like that, you know, that Alana Miles story is pretty wild in the book. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, that's the whole thing. Um, it's It's more like that modern day kids are so distracted. And so, you know, for them to buckle down and be willing to work through a weekend, to work all night, whatever it takes to make a hit, you know, that's the kind of uh, work ethic that I that I promote and, and encourage. And so many people, you know, that have worked with me have come up to me and said, you know, it was it was that time that I wrote with you that reset my mind, you know, and got me to buckle down and become successful. So that always is a great, great feeling. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And one other question then kind of goes along the lines of great feelings. Is there any um, sessions, if you could go back and relive one session or writing session or recording session, uh, what would it be? Is the one that stands out the most to you? Oh, gosh. Maybe it was working with Bonnie Tyler. And... um, we had decided the last minute to do a Janis Joplin song that she had done on her first Big Brother album called Turtle Blues. You know, I'm a mean woman, baby. And we end the record with it. And we were at Bearswell Studios where Janis had recorded when she had, you know, had since passed. And I went into the vocal booth with her and she starts channeling Janis. And the two of us looked at each other and we were like goosebumpy. Uh, I'll never forget that moment. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful record, by the way. Hide Your Heart is the name of the album. And I had found a song for her that had never been recorded before and begged the writers, Holly Knight and Mike Chapman, to let me have it. Because remember, she had had total clips of the heart. So she was poised to have another huge hit. And the song goes like this. You're simply the best, better than all the rest. And the label told us we didn't have any hits on the record. And, uh, you know, the guy, the A&R guy, Muff Winwood, right? Steve Winwood's brother was the head of A&R. And w- there were so many hits on this record. They gave me an, uh, a um, budget for three songs. I cut 10 songs borrowed from you know peter to pay paul to make that record happen because i love bonnie so much and you know they didn't hear the best it should have been the first single and so they completely like neglected her i mean her career never recovered and you know it was very very painful then a year and a half later tina turner cuts it it becomes the biggest song in the world to this day so there you have it, you know, and Tina's version is the exact duplicate of Bonnie's version. Same synth, same, wow. you know, you've got A, A and B them. They're like identical. So you know, these um, A, A and R, you know, geniuses aren't so genius sometimes. <laughs> sliding doors moments well it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you Desmond and again I recommend everyone to go out and get uh, Living on a Prayer Big Songs Big Life it's an absolutely fascinating read it's not just about rock and roll there's everything in there because you've worked with so many other superstars as well from the pop world and the Latino world and, and everything else plus all the in-depth stories about you and your life and your personal life and everything you've gone through it's an incredible read so please do get out and buy it and uh, Desmond thank you so much for joining me on VIP Rocks today thank you Paul you've been wonderful to talk to Thank you. There you go, the brilliant Desmond Child. I hope you enjoyed listening to those stories of rock legends and some of the classic songs that he's been involved with. Remember, you can read even more about all these and more in his new book, which is called Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life, which is out now. 
And so that's it for me in this week's episode then. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast apps so you get all the episodes, loads more great guests and brilliant stories to come over the next few weeks. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on that podcast app that you're using right now. A really big difference it makes, it does. Check out VRP Rocks on YouTube as well. The channel growing all the time. Give us a like, a follow, subscribe, whatever it is on the social media channels too. Just search for VRP Rocks everywhere. A big thanks to all of you who interact each week. I'll get some more right out next week for you as well. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.